Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It is July 25th, 2018, and we have a very special guest. A lot of discussion about a piece that uh, that appears in the Weekly Standard by Andy Smerick, who is the Civil Society Education and Work Director at the R Street uh, Institute. And his piece is The Moral Ledger, Making the Case that uh, it might not be a good idea to simply deal with Donald Trump by calling balls and strikes. Uh, And he addresses this consensus among conservative dissidents that, yeah, yeah, we'll oppose the president when his policies and practices uh, violate our principles, but also we got to give him credit whenever he stakes out, you know, agreeable positions on issues that that matter. And, And he writes, it is a coherent approach. It is the pragmatic one. But it is unsatisfying and unsettling. And with each casual lie, crude insult, attack on the media, slight of the intelligence community, an example of grotesque servility to Russia's dictator, it increasingly appears morally misguided. He writes, the first problem with itemizing and compartmentalizing is that actions cannot be treated as discrete. In politics, there are the direct result of a system's arrangement and a leader's philosophy. They reflect the larger enterprise. We deceive ourselves by separating quiet streets from the oppressive police state that brought them about. We should not laud an initiative to aid the impoverished if it's part of a Rawlsian undertaking that continuously impinges on liberty. Support for modernizing an outdated social convention is irresponsible if the larger agenda aims to replace all traditions with state-controlled program. Andy Smerick now joins me on the Daily Standard podcast. Uh, thanks for, uh, for taking the time, Andy. Well, it's a thrill. Thank you so much for having me. Well, this this piece has generated an awful lot of uh, attention. And before we went on, you and I were, were discussing the fact that um, I had to be on Morning Joe yesterday morning talking about this. And uh, uh, unfortunately, was uh, was paired with Eric Bowling, who didn't really want to address this moral ledger issue at, at, at all. But I guess the first question that I wanted to ask you is, why did you decide to write this piece? Because the for a lot of conservatives, including never Trump conservatives, the easiest default setting is to say, well, of course, we'll say nice things about the president when he's right. We'll criticize him when he's wrong. What was the trigger that made you sit down and go, no, you know what? We, we can't do that. Well, it was a gut instinct more than anything else, because I had fallen into what I now see as the same trap. It is very easy, and I even use this term in the piece about, like, it protects our consciences, I think, to say, yeah, yeah, I know he's doing all these bad things, but he's done, he's given us Kavanaugh and Gorsuch. Um, And so just this idea that I and others had fallen into this pattern of um, trying to justify some of the bad things by saying, well, let's compartmentalize, let's just give credit for the good things it kind of blinded me and I think can blind some other people to the long-term damage done when you forget about that other side of the ledger. Um, And so the more I thought about this, the more I realized, listen, there are a whole lot of people, a whole lot of institutions in our history where you could compartmentalize and you could point out a couple things that you liked, but that sure as heck does not mean that you should sign on for the, the bigger agenda. And you have to ask yourselves by compartmentalizing, by saying, I like this or that, are you enabling something bigger with which you disagree? But how, as a conservative, do you not say Bud Gorsuch? How, how do you not say, okay, I, 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 I hate the racism, the xenophobia, uh, the lying, but uh, you know, he is appointing good federal judges. He is appointing people to the bench 
who will, you know, who agree with, you know, my judicial philosophy. So what, what is what is wrong with that? Well, so that is the trap. That is the nature of temptation. And this is what I talk about at the very end of the piece. Um, that I like Gorsuch probably as much as anyone. Kavanaugh excited me, the idea that we could get Barrett on the court next. These are extraordinarily encouraging things. And many of us have been waiting years to have the opportunity to have a court, uh, Supreme Court with which we agree. But if all we do is focus on the but Gorsuch, but Kavanaugh, what does that blind us to? That little bit of good maybe enables us to look past a whole lot of bad, and a little bit more good allows us to look past a whole lot more bad. And I use this line at the end of the piece, I don't want to get into the position, and I hope others don't either, of eventually saying, but Gorsuch, but Kavanaugh, but Barrett, and then we end up in the abyss because we had this long train of micro-compromises where at the end we realized two, three, four years from now we compromise on all these issues and we signed up for something and we got some good out of it. But man, the damage done was um, disastrous to us, to conservatism and beyond. You know, you, you, you used the word train in, in, the, in the back of my head. Um, and you don't go there and I'm, I'm always hesitant to, to do this, but it does sort of remind me of the line, well, yes, Mussolini's bad, but he made the trains run on time because everybody does something that you will like, right? I mean, it's it's the, it's the balls and strikes that when you are faced with with an existential threat to the, the you know the, the the body politic, you know, there's there always going to be a mixture of good and bad, correct? That's right, and I do allude to this um, the trains running on time thing. Yeah. And what really struck me is if you look back in history, think of all of the people who did nasty stuff, but they had one or two things that we could agree with. History does not look kindly on people who say um, who are viewed to have been the ones who were just cheering the on time trains. What history wants to know is that we were doing a full accounting and that we were recognizing that those on-time trains were part of a bigger enterprise and uh, the on-time trains do not justify everything else. This is a – for people who have not yet read this, and I strongly recommend that people read this, this piece, this is a morally serious piece and, and you, because you go through the discussion – of the effects of of immorality that that sometimes the the costs of you know the the, the costs are cumulative. So could you just walk us through that? You know, stepping back from Trump and and all of this, you know that 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 each compromise does not seem uh, to have a great cost. It is, as you pointed out before, it is the cumulative cost. So just could you walk through your 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 analysis there because it's not just a political analysis. It's it's an analysis of of all the moral decisions that we make on a daily basis. Well, that's right. And I don't want to come across as some sort of moralizing scold because there are lots of people who um, support Trump, who I'm friends with and who really view that Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and the rest like that was what we've been waiting for. And we need to stand by that no matter what. But there is this piece that um, morality, tradition, norms are a step above just these policy things that we we care about. And if you take seriously this idea of that there are certain behaviors, norms, conventions that we have to adhere to, um, we just have to recognize that we're in a precarious position here. And so uh, this uh, question about like um, the creeping danger of compromising, 
No one I know who ended up in a bad position went from a saint to a scourge overnight. That almost never happens. What does happen is you start gambling a little too much. Mm -hmm. You engage in a risky deal a little bit too much. And then the next time you do more and more. But because each of these increments is so small, you don't really recognize it or you don't much think about it. But if you do that two times, 20 times, 200 times, the delta from who you were to who you've become ends up being huge. Um, And you just never recognize, you never really internalized where you were and where you've ended up. And that's what I feel is happening. Certainly it felt like it was happening to me and some of my friends, colleagues, and I think other conservatives. Oh, yeah, I hate that he did Charlottesville. I hate that he um, has uh, said these things about immigrant communities or what he said about John McCain. But he did this little thing I liked. How many more things are people going to tolerate if he gives us one more thing that we like? At the end of the day, when we do the final accounting, we could realize that the, the delta between the good and the bad is extraordinary. And then we're going to be left asking ourselves, how did we end up here? And I'm just trying to call the question. Micro compromises might seem small in the short term, but they accumulate. They, 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 they do. And, and, and you and you mentioned the uh, uh, use the language of game theory defection, you know, whether lying or embezzlement. I'm reading from your piece, infidelity or illicit drug use, hiding income or abusing welfare programs. These offenses can seem utterly inconsequential in the immediate term. It can even be difficult to imagine how they could prove corrosive to society at large. You know, and, and so we don't really have a way of, of assessing their, their costs. And so it is that moment you step back and you realize you realize all of the compromises that you have made. The other point that I make um, and, I, you know, I, I talk about the, the Faustian bargain that I think uh, members of Congress have made in tra- transactional, the transactionalism of, of all of that. And these are people I respect. It's a rational decision to say, OK, I'm going to go along with this because I get something. But the thing about the Faustian bargain is that you do get things that you like. You, you do get things that are good, but you find out that the price is way more than you expected. And, and this, this is, I think you make the, the moral case for how corrosive this can be, that each one of these compromises really becomes easier. There is a cumulative effect and each one becomes easier and it becomes more difficult to walk back. I mean, you know, if you have you know, compromised on, you know, 30 things, at what point are you ever going to draw the line and say, okay, I I made a mistake. Okay. It's not enough uh, simply to get tax cuts for me to accept all of this. Well, so this is exactly right. And this is the part of the piece that I spent the most time ruminating over. And I tried to come at this from two different angles. So the first is I do make this allusion to game theory. Um, And this is a little bit wonky, but for the people who know a little bit about the prisoner's dilemma or things like this, You can always extract a little bit of a win in the immediate um, by behaving badly, by defecting. The problem is in what's called an iterated game, that if you do that time and time again, you end up losing in the long run because you break down trust. You break down the kind of relationships that are necessary. Sometimes you have to lose in the short term to build up what's called the evolution of cooperation. And the second part is something that should really resonate with conservatives. The reason why we have norms and morals and conventions is that often when we do something bad in the moment, we don't recognize the cost. But all of the generations that came before us had the opportunity to learn from this, and so they handed down these lessons. Don't lie. Don't cheat. 
Well, we could say in the moment, but lying could give us a win or cheating could give us a little bit more money. These conventions teach us, no, you can't do that because even if you don't recognize in the short term that there's a cost, in the long term there will be a cost for you, for your friends, and for all of us as a whole. And I just worry that if we stay focused on the here and now, the the micro win, we're, uh, we're ignoring all of these lessons that history has taught us. It, and this was a fundamental this was a fundamental observation of conservatives, as you point out. This was something that up until recently that it was the the conservative insight into why we do these things, because it is this accumulated wisdom. There are a reason that we have these norms. There are there's a reason why rules matter. And yet we are in this position, this this moment now where there's almost this giddy delight in destroying those norms, in breaking those rules, because either it gets you a win or you're owning the libs yep. or or the the embrace of moral relativism by by the right, which is that that, well, the left has been doing this for for generations. And therefore, we should you know, why should we um, why should we try to be better than they are? And I think one of the most disturbing things that we've seen is that is is that is is how the the right has many people on the right have internalized this moral equivalency, this moral relativism, you know, and and made it and made it you know almost a a a, a tenet now of of their of their political strategy, which is that that if the other side that that lying, deceit, vulgarity, crudeness, all of these things are justified because the other side does it and because they win. Yes. And so I was coming of age. I was still a relatively young person when the Clinton scandals of 97, 98 happened. And it was easy for conservatives to um, stand on the side of conventions, on the side of norms, because you could both stand up for these longstanding practices and take um, a pound of flesh away from uh, the administration you didn't like. But what we're recognizing right now, and it's painful, we uh, conservatives, we ought to embrace this. We just have to own this. It is no fun to stand up for norms and conventions when what that means is that you may lose in the short term. And this is what we got to grapple with in the moment, that by virtue of saying that some of these conventions being broken is dangerous, that means that we're saying that um, we're calling into question the Butt Gorsuch, the Butt Kavanaugh way of thinking. And I just think it requires something special of people who believe in conventions, norms, morality over time, that sometimes in the short term, it's going to be painful, but in the long term, it's indispensable. Um, it's always fun to like this adolescent glee of knocking down stuffy old ways. But no, Modesty, prudence, who cares? That's cuck stuff, right? Well, that's right. But <laughs> I mean, these conventions, like they're there for a reason. They are evolutionarily robust. They've stuck with us because they do good. And man, we're going to pay a cost if we just ignore them because we're getting short wins. Yeah, I, you you have a great, great paragraph. You know, the you talk about the adolescent glee, uh, yeah, adolescent glee in you know deriding and dismissing these old stuffy things. You know, stop being so dramatic. They say none of that really matters. We got tax cuts. They cry Gorsuch, as if it were downright silly to hand wring when the plus side entries are tangible bonanzas and the minus side entries are intangible norm breakers like attacking the media and insulting longtime allies. It's a perfect example. Is they're looking at well, we got this win right here and all. All of the things that we have we've thrown away well there's no real price to all of that you have a great line here 
but we are only able to scoff at the violation of longstanding conventions if we believe standards of behavior are just polite society's decoration, the moral frippery of prigs. But, you write, norms are our community's load-bearing walls, undermine them too often, and the edifice will collapse. That's powerful stuff. I've I, that that's as well put as I've seen. I've I've been using a, a different analogy that that we we rely as a you know li- liberal democratic constitutional republic on this vast reservoir of of values and and norms and and, and rules, and we just sort of assume that that reservoir is full, and it takes generations, of course, to fill it. But once it is, it, you know, the water level goes down and down and down. And one day we wake up and we find out that the reservoir is is empty and we have been assuming that we could rely on those things for a very, very long time. We've been drawing down the balance for a long time, but it's not infinite. And this is something that I think that conservatives once understood, that these these norms are there's a certain fragility to them, which is why you don't casually give them up to get a short term win. Exactly. And I think it was Chesterton, and someone will quote me if I'm wrong on this, uh, who had this idea that um, tradition is the democracy of the dead, the tradition, customs, norms. It it allows us to recognize that the people who came before us were smart and they tried things and they learned lessons and they handed these things down to us. And Hayek actually makes this point that often we have to trust in the short term things like custom and tradition, even if we don't understand in that moment why it is necessary, that we could get a win by breaking that tradition. But this is all of the people who came before us. Um, they bequeathed us this wisdom. And are we really going to sacrifice it for um, the here and now? And man, sometimes it feels like uh, it makes sense to, that we can really gain from it. But the cost, this is why we call the piece, um, we refer to the ledger. We have to think of both the pluses and the minuses. You're right. The road to hell is paved with piecemeal situational approach to morality. But let me just push back a little bit. Um, in, in the world of politics, isn't politics always about compromise? Isn't it always about taking the good with the bad? In our daily lives, you know, we're always going to deal with a jerky neighbor or, you know, the colleague who is uh, who's a pain in the ass. And we're, we're always going to have to overlook certain things. We're going to have to make these sorts of compromises. Um, even the great statesman of, of American history, Abraham Lincoln, had to make compromises that in retrospect, at least at the time, might have looked um, you know, morally problematic. So what what is the answer to the people that look, no one is perfect. You take the wins that you can get um, w- w- without holding people to an unreasonable standard of behavior. Where, what is that line? Well, people have been writing about that for, what, two, three, four thousand years. Um, I mean, this is what these debates and books and lectures, lessons about justice are all about. And I certainly don't have um, this whittled down to a sentence. Uh, so I want to concede your point. It is absolutely the case that the business of public life is about concessions and compromises. And uh, as smart as a lot of us think we are, um, we're all flawed and we should never uh, just um, dig in and say everyone else is wrong and I'm on the side of the angels always. But having said all of that, we have to recognize that there are these moral lessons. There is an enduring moral order. We have been handed down lessons and you know we can compromise on whether the tax rate should be 25 or 26 
Whether we compromise on lying being okay or not is a different story. Whether we compromise on uh, things related to national security and on and on and on, uh, that that's a quite different story. And I think we have to come to grips with this, that there's some things on which compromises are not just legitimate, but necessary sometimes. And there are some issues on which compromise is never going to be right in the long term. Okay, so you, um, I, I don't know a lot about your politics, but did you support uh, President George H.W. Bush, George W. Bush, yes. Mitt Romney, John McCain? These are all flawed guys, right? Made mistakes. In full disclosure, I worked for George W. Bush, and I was a fan of his and his dad, and obviously learned a lot from Ronald Reagan. So I am uh, a full-spectrum mm-hmm. conservative. Okay, so then the question is, what is it about Donald Trump? that puts him beyond the pale. What, what was for you the red line? A lot of us have, and we've had these discussions, I've had this conversation with Bill Crystal and others with Stephen Hayes. Um, what, what was your line where you go, I'm, I'm sorry, um, even if I agree with this guy on certain policies, uh, this, is, this, is, this is the bridge too far? Uh, that's a really good question. So for me, it happened early. And so um, uh, everything that has happened after that just reaffirmed the early sense that I had. When he made his first insulting remarks about John McCain's service, <laughs> like uh-huh. it, 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 dropped, it dropped my jaw. I thought, well, f- does he not understand service? Does he not understand what John McCain went through? Well, how could he do that? And then when he said things about um, there was a judge whose background he called into judge question. Curiel, yeah. That's right. And then when he was obviously – uh, just didn't have any position, like he would give money to one candidate or another, or he had been pro-choice and he was pro-life. In each of these cases, I could never find a case for wh- why would I defend him when he one instance after another is a case of not telling the truth or being uh, morally ambiguous on some of these issues. And I just have never seen an instance after that that made me realize all those things in the past, oh, I should ignore them. But I just remember that first thing about John McCain saying, this is not normal. It's it's funny that you should mention that because I know that uh, Stephen Hayes and I have had this conversation that that was also one of that, those moments where you go, okay, we thought that was the end of the campaign, that there was no way that you would be able to survive that um, or, or go ahead. But then there have been so many of those of those moments. And, you know, to be honest, I mean, I, I was, you know, I was never Trump from the moment he came down the golden, the golden escalator. Um, and, and, you know, the, you know, talking about the Mexican rapists and you can just, you know, you know the, the, the ban on Muslims. I mean, the notion that, that American conservatives would not be absolutely repelled by someone talking about a ban on more than a billion people because of their religious faith, that still boggles the mind. But I mean, I look at I look at Donald Trump and go, you know, he he represents every caricature that we conservatives have pushed back against for generations. I mean, he's a liar. He's a con man. You know, um, you know, he, he insults the, the disabled and 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 and, and, and women um, and all of the all of these things. It's like of every conservative value, including that character matters. This is a violation. So part of this whole experience that we're going through for me, and I've you know updated my, my book about this, is that Donald Trump turns out to be pretty much who we thought he was. Yes. I, Donald Trump is, is a, nothing, he's been shocking, but it shouldn't be surprising to anybody who's paid attention. What has been, and I think genuinely shocking, I want to get your take on this, is to watch our friends and our former friends and our colleagues in the conservative movement adapt themselves to all of this. 
to basically see everything that we are seeing and go, no, you know, we're okay with all of this. We're talking at a moment when 88% of Republicans say they approve of Donald Trump's performance. 79% of Republicans said they approved of Donald Trump's performance in Helsinki with Donald Trump. Andy, what happened? How do you explain that? So this is sometimes where I feel like I've gone through the looking glass. And there have been, sometimes I feel um, uh, inadequate when I'm listing the things that he's done with which I disagree because I worry that I'm going to leave some off the list. um, Because there have just been so many. And so honestly, I don't really have a hard time saying that this man has done entirely too many things over too long a period of time for me to trust that his judgment is morally sound. But the fact that I reached that conclusion so easily, so quickly, and I'm pretty firm in this, that there are so many people that you and I know and probably consider friends and colleagues who look past all of those things or explain them away or minimize them, it's uh, it's hard to explain. Honestly, well, it does. I never thought we would get here. I never no. thought this was possible. I mean, I I try to break it down into obviously there's certain tribalism. I think that's become almost a cliche now that, uh, you know, politics has become so, so tribal um, that it's not really about ideas. It's more about attitudes. Uh, Obviously, in Washington, D.C., it should not be a huge shock to find out how transactional politics has become. People are willing to overlook things because they get something. And then, of course, there is the tremendous power of anti-anti-Trumpism. Uh, the, you know, that we, we don't, we're not going to defend Donald Trump, but we just really hate his critics so much. Mm -hmm. But I do think that your piece goes right to the heart of all of this, which is the, what are you willing to give up? What price are you willing to pay? And what will the conservative movement look like after four or eight years of Donald Trump? Uh, there's an ongoing debate that people have had. So sooner or later, Donald Trump is going to leave the scene. Yes. Yeah, uh, w- will the conservative movement just snap back? Will it be able to shrug this off and say, OK, you know, the good, good times, but that's not us. We're going to we're going to move on from Donald Trump. Or, or does this leave an enduring stain? I think that the those chapters have not yet been written. And I think those of us who consider ourselves in wilderness years right now have to take that seriously. But also the people who are serving in public office right now, whether it's the Ben Sass, the Marco Rubio's, the governor who appointed me to um, office, Larry Hogan, that they have the opportunity to um, to write these chapters. And mm-hmm. we have the way of talking about this of continuously standing up and saying, this is not what conservatism is. This is how we manage in this situation. And you are exactly right. The day will come, whether it's in 2020 or 2024, who knows when this period ends. And we have to decide who we are going to be when that day comes, but we have to build toward that right now. And that's why I've spent so much time writing, talking about this, because uh, when that day comes, I want us all to be prepared for it. And uh, feel really good, have clear consciences about what we did in the past during this uh, time and be able to grow into the future. So we're, we have to look to the leaders of today to see where they position themselves. And it's a it, it's a big question. I also think we're going to have to engage in some ongoing introspection about what the conservative movement was about, because part of the shock for me of watching the the rise and, and embrace of, of Donald Trump was, I thought I understood what conservatism was about. I thought I understood who my conservative allies were. But if they were capable of embracing this, maybe I had it wrong. And 
I, you know, I, I disagree with. There's a there's a line on the left which says that uh, Donald Trump is, is an organic uh, development from American conservatism. That that you know conservatism is Trumpism. Trumpism is conservatism. I I disagree with that. It's it's becoming a harder and harder case to make. But I, I've argued that that you know many of the things that Trump has. Uh, exploited, whether it is the nativism, the populism, the demagoguery, uh, these, these, the isolationism, these were, and uh, maybe this isn't the best analogy, but it's the one I've been using is, it's like, these were always recessive genes in the conservative movement. They were always there, but until recently they had been kept in check. And that, that at some point we are going to have to, to go back and go, okay, were there things in the conservative movement, among the conservative base, that we did not really fully understand, that we did not push back on sufficiently. That's right. And I think that uh, in time, we're going to be able to look back and understand um, how we, and in fact, the 16, 17, 18 other candidates who were running against him weren't able to tap into what he did tap into. And that's actually a really interesting question that we, we need to figure out. But what I get frustrated with some of my conservative Republican friends who left the party because of him or say they're no longer conservatives because of him. I'm not willing to concede the Republican Party. I'm not willing to concede conservatism. Like I still believe in pluralism and markets and free trade and an enduring moral order and limited government and liberty. This is what conservatism is, and that isn't going away. Um, He may currently be the head of the Republican Party, but this this time is going to end. And I think you and I and the rest have to decide, do we still believe in those pillars of conservatism? I certainly do. So how are we going to um, re-energize them, bring them back to life whenever that day comes? I'm not giving up. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, Andy Smerica, your piece is absolutely outstanding. The moral ledger it is in the Weekly Standard. It's, uh, are you surprised by the amount of attention you're getting for this piece? Uh, I am. Uh, one never knows uh, when you write <laughs> what's going to hit and what's not. But if anything, maybe this just uh, it touched a chord with folks. So I think that's a good sign. It it, it did. Now, I, you, uh, I, I think you caught when, when I was asked to comment on your piece uh, – on um, Morning Joe yesterday with uh, with the the unfortunate Eric Bowling, um, what 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 points should I have made that I didn't make? Uh, no, I I think you, you uh, thank you for fighting the cause. Um, you were on the side of the angels here. Thank you for doing my work. I, I appreciate that. I think we need to continuously point out to people when they. Um, say, but tax cuts or but low in empo- unemployment, they're making our case for them. If you are not able to recognize that there is another side of the ledger, um, pointing out the good things do not make the bad things go away. If we can just make our friends and colleagues recognize that that other side is there and make them grapple with that, um, I, I think we're headed in the right direction. And the fact that some people just don't want to do that, I think that that's a sign. Uh, Andy Smerick, thanks for uh, joining me. Today's Daily Standard podcast was brought to you by The Lending Club. For decades, credit cards have been telling us to buy it now and pay for it later with interest, pretty much like the federal government. Despite your best intentions, that interest can get out of control fast. But with Lending Club, you can consolidate your debt or pay off credit cards with one fixed monthly payment. Since 2007, Lending Club has helped millions of people regain control of their finances with affordable fixed rate personal loans, no trips to a bank, no high credit cards. So just go to LendingClub.com, tell them about yourself and how much you want to borrow, pick the terms that are right for you, and if you're approved, your loan is automatically deposited into your bank account 
in as little as a few days. This is the number one peer-to-peer lending platform with more than $35 billion in loans issued. So go to LendingClub.com standard, check your rate in minutes, and borrow up to $40,000. That's LendingClub.com standard, LendingClub.com standard. All loans made by WebBank member FDIC equal housing lender. Thank you for listening to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow and we'll do this all over again.